Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Anne, and I am the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking about Sharon Yoon's new book, The Cost of Belonging, an Ethnography on Solidarity and Mobility in Beijing's Koreatown. Sharon, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, no, thank you so much for being here. Um, Sharon, I wonder if we can begin the interview with you telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so I'm trained as a qualitative sociologist, and I received my doctorate in sociology from Princeton University. But currently, I'm an assistant professor in the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. Um, but before I came to Notre Dame, I spent nearly 10 years traveling around Asia and living overseas while conducting research. Um, In particular, until last year, I was in Seoul working as an assistant professor in the Graduate School of International Studies at Yuhua Women's University. And I taught courses there um, primarily in Korean studies. And prior to that, I spent two years as a JSPS postdoctoral fellow at Osaka University in Japan. Mm, yeah, that sounds like a really cool experiences, and you have taught very transnationally as well, which is really cool. <laughs> um, uh, Sharon, I wonder if you can tell us how you came to write the cost of belonging. Um, so, the genesis of my book, you know, I think starts. Um, during graduate school. Um, so I was born and raised in New Jersey as a second generation Korean American. Um, my father was the pastor of a Korean immigrant church. And so I think even before um, I entered graduate school, um, I always had this kind of intuitive um sense of curiosity of how Korean communities are working, how they break down, how they form, like how people work together to help each other or how there's like internal fighting. Um, And so, you know, a lot of that desire, I think, came from watching my father counsel Korean immigrant entrepreneurs while they were attending our church. So when I went to graduate school, I wanted to understand Koreans who were not like me. So Koreans who were not in America, but in other parts of the world. And I had read a lot of books about Korean minorities in China and how they had migrated across the border into Manchuria during the late 1880s and during Japanese colonization between 1920 and 1945. And it was like so exotic and like dreamlike to me. I couldn't imagine these people who had such different lives uh, from me. And yet they seemed to be struggling with similar things that I was struggling with in terms of understanding their place in China, understanding themselves as Koreans. 
Um, but through, you know, what I read about was throughout the Mao Zedong period, they, a lot of them were primarily concentrated in the border regions. They, li- they lived in these tightly knit ethnic communities where, you know, they were mostly farmers tilling like the rice paddies. They lived on these agricultural communes. And it seemed like a very idyllic lifestyle. Um, so the first year I was at graduate school, I applied for funding and I went to these border regions near North Korea, the North Korean border in China. Um, and I taught English in the Yanbian Korean Autonomous Prefecture in northeastern China. And most of my students were the descendants of those uh, early migrants. So they were third and fourth generation Korean Chinese. I remember like when I first talked to some of these students, I couldn't understand what they were saying because even though we were both speaking in Korean, like they spoke with this heavy like North Korean dialect mixed with Chinese. And a lot of their words were different from what I was used to. Um, And so I was really, you know, I was really struck by them. Um, and, you know, I became friends with them. I taught them English. I interviewed them. I learned more about their history in Yanbian. But they were really excited about this, like, future of someday finding a job in Beijing or Shanghai and living, like, this urban cosmopolitan lifestyle. You know, they didn't want to live in these uh, farming villages anymore, right? And so their dream was to graduate from university and to find a job at like Samsung or LG or SK that were all building these headquarters um, in Beijing at the time that I was doing my research. So the next summer, um, I went with them, you know, to Beijing and I saw that there was this new type of Koreatown. And when I talked to the people there, they said, you know, 10 years ago. So like in the early 2000s, this land was completely barren. There was nothing there, um, maybe some farmland, but no cars. And then in the matter of like two or three years, they started like building these high-rise apartment buildings. Samsung came in and built in like a branch there. And it was modernizing at such rapid rates. And a lot of that modernization was... Um, led by these South Korean migrants, you know, so these were newcomers who were business executives and diplomats, as well as just ordinary people who were, you know, building a new life in Beijing, and they were hiring these Korean Chinese migrants. So I was really excited because I had never, um, I had never seen um, this type of new urban enclave. And I thought that this was showing how the Korean communities in China were changing. And so, you know, I embarked on my dissertation field, res- field research in 2010. Mm, I see. Yeah. Um, what you're saying is actually reminding me of how in chapter two, uh, you uh, talk about the symbolic meaning of Kohang, uh, which means the home. And it was really interesting because you talk about the disillusionment these migrants go through and they actually long for the countryside. But in a way, you talk about this tension because the home no longer exists. Um, so can you talk maybe more about this idea of home and how neoliberal structuring is changing the spatial formation of people's belonging. 
That's a great question. Um, and I think, you know, when I talked about earlier, like how this all kind of started as like me as a Korean American woman growing up in America, I think that connects to like how I also, when I was meeting these Korean Chinese in Beijing, like I also connected with their story, right? So um, a lot of these Korean Chinese I was really shocked by how they were really successful in terms of their um, their wealth, right? So a lot of these Korean Chinese, as I said before, they come in with barely anything. A lot of them had been, you know, raised in these farms. They don't have much money, um, and then they build these small um, mom and pop shops in the Koreatown, and over time, they're able to amass wealth. Um, and I thought, you know, like, isn't it great that you're now like so wealthy, you can afford these nice clothes, you have like this nice apartment, you drive this nice car, right? Like, I expected them to be super, um, you know, proud of their accomplishments and really happy about their decision to come to Beijing. But actually, what I found was that a lot of them were really, you know, they, they expressed like regret, you know, some of them were like, I wish I, I wish I had never come or I wonder what it would have been like if we had all stayed, you know, in these, in these villages in Northeastern China. And we never knew what this, this urban life was like. And in the beginning processes of writing this, you know, I didn't really pay attention to that because as a sociologist, I was like, material wealth, upward mobility, you know, this is like the outcome, right? The outcome variable. But then, you know, over time, as I, as I was writing and rewriting the manuscript, you know, that kind of not nagging feeling that that was something important um, started to bother me. And I realized that for them, more than material wealth, you know, they wanted to feel like they belong somewhere. And in a sense, they thought that that wealth, being middle class, would give them some kind of respect, would make them feel some kind of confidence, right? And some kind of assurance that they belong somewhere. And yet the opposite happens at the Koreatown because a lot of the South Koreans, they become very jealous of their economic success, and they start spreading rumors about how the wealth of these Korean Chinese was from dirty money. You know, it's because they were deceptive. They were scheming and they conned these South Koreans and ran away with their money. And that's how, you know, these Korean Chinese became wealthy. And so in a sense, that rumor really tainted kind of the overall image of economic success that was attributed to the Korean Chinese. And it tainted, it made their trajectories of socioeconomic mobility seem illegitimate and seem immoral. And so in a sense, like, you know, there was this tension between like, how do I feel about, you know, my new class status that has also tainted my sense of connection to my ancestral homeland? 
Mm, interesting. Yeah, and this connects to the central question that you asked throughout your book as well. Um, because I found your finding to be really fascinating because you talk about how a lot of Korean entrepreneurs started coming to China um after the financial crisis. Um, but a lot of them actually have a downward mobility, while uh, Korean Chinese, a lot of them are very successful, and um, you know there are very Various reasons that you talk about in your book, but I wonder if you can also talk more about uh, your findings for this as well. Yeah. Um, so you know, half of my book is about the Korean Chinese and how they make sense of their new middle class identities, but the other half of my book is also about these new waves of South Koreans, not the not the people who are associated with. Um, these major multinational corporations like Samsung and LG, but these ordinary South Koreans who come on their own um, because they see Beijing as a middle as a second chance to hold on to their middle class status. And what I mean by that is, at the time of their migration, you know, South Korea is undergoing the Asian financial crisis of 1997, and what happens? In 1997, is that there are unprecedented layoffs. These layoffs create unprecedented amounts of homelessness, of poverty. You know, homelessness and poverty also lead to depression and suicide, mental health issues, family breakdown, a slew, right, of social problems. At the same time, because there is No, like employment opportunities with the mass layoffs, everyone turns to small business. They use their retirement savings and whatever money that they have, and they all pour it into this small mom and pop shop in South Korea. And findings, research uh, from research, uh, demonstrate that you know the rates of downward mobility for these middle class south korean entrepreneurs in south korea after 1997 is astounding right one in three of them lose their 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 companies within a matter of i think it's three years right and um not only that but the vast majority of them i think more than 70% of them They are the sole employee, you know. So these are not big companies; these are very small um, businesses. And so, for a South Korean who is living in the in South Korea um, in the early two thousands, like the prospects feel very bleak. You know, you don't really have a sense that if I work hard, I can make it here, right? There's a sense of like I want to escape. Um, what people call now like hell chosen, right? I want to escape this really bleak environment. And at the same time, in 2001, China is on the rise. Everyone is so excited about China as the next economic superpower. China enters the WTO, the World Trade Organization in 2001. And, you know, it just seems like this perfect match where the costs of living are lower in Beijing, Beijing, the future is like, you know, so bright, and it's on this economic right incline, right, not a decline. And the cost of labor are really cheap. So even if you hire like ten people, you pay the same salary that you would hire for one South Korean, right? So this, this, this feeling that if I can 
come to China and Beijing, which is a metropolis, maybe my life will be better. And so thousands and thousands of South Koreans migrate to China and Beijing and Shanghai, these major cities, in the early 2000s, in the aftermath of this economic recession. Um, a lot of them, as you know, though, like, you know, they come with these high hopes, but the vast majority of them fail, right? The vast majority of them small, start these small mom and pop shops in the Beijing, in the Koreatown in Beijing, and they lose their businesses very similarly in a matter of one to three years. Um, I didn't know this at first, right? So when I first came to Wangjing, which is the district that in Beijing that the Koreatown is located, I was like, wow, everything's so fancy. You have these really nice shishi like cafes, these really nice barbecue shops and these boutiques. And I was like, wow, this is like really like a second chance. But then the more that I got to know these South Koreans, the more that I saw like people leave one by one. And the way that they left was like really disheartening. Like people would just disappear, right? They'd be like, oh, what happened to that boutique? They're like, oh, you know, I don't know. Like they just disappear. And then when I talked to like the South Korean, uh, the international students, the Yuaksangs, you know, they're very used to it. They're like, oh yeah, it happens all the time. So as a researcher, I was like, this happens all the time. Like, what, what do you mean, right? And so I, I went and I started to talk to these businessmen and I tried to ask them, like, how, you know, like, how they came to Beijing, what hopes that they had, and the processes of, like, you know, losing their business, what happens. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And um, you have a very heartbreaking stories um, in these chapters because I also don't like to read or hear about downward mobility as an immigrant uh, myself. Um, so I felt, you know, really heartbroken while I was reading their stories because, yeah, you do point out a lot of them are really well educated. Like some of them have like very prestigious degrees from Korea. And um, you all talk about how how the cultural like hybridity is really important and uh, for them like they didn't really have the language ability um they didn't have the connection um so i wonder if um you can talk a little bit more about maybe some of the memorable encounters and how they negotiate their losses sure um so uh, you know a major theme that i have is about you know, in terms of their material wealth, like what types of business businessmen succeed and what types fail in Beijing? And what do you need? What are the characteristics that you need in order to have a successful business in the Korean enclave? Um, as you pointed out, um, what was surprising was that for the South Korean businessmen, it seemed in the beginning that they had everything that they needed for success. And what I mean by that is like, you know, as a sociologist, I read about immigrant entrepreneurship, you know, in my classes. And one of my professor was like Alejandro Portes, right? Who is who has written all about have you written have you read his work? It's all about like immigrant entrepreneurship, yeah. right? Mm, and ethnic yeah. enclave. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, very idealized in yeah, a way. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A lot of his work is about looking at these、um, Cuban migrants in、um, Miami and how they were so successful. So that was, you know, the expectation that I had going in, and also, you know, even in my、um, childhood environment, I saw Korean immigrants who. Started with barely nothing, and they had dry cleaners and nail salons in New York City, and they were able to become, you know, somewhat wealthy, at least economically, you know, stable、uh, over a period of time. And so, I expected that to also happen. And so, according to this literature, you have a key what's called predictors or determinants of success, right? And what are those determinants? It's human capital. Your past job experience, and also your um, your uh college education, whether or not the first generation is college educated, and then also if you have the social networks that will give you startup capital, like money to you know use as seed money for your business. If you have those criteria, then you're pretty much set up for success. And they all check those boxes, right? They had. Good seed money.、Um, they had a lot of them were like they had graduate degrees from prestigious universities in Korea, like Yonsei University, SNU, Seoul National University, Korean University, and a lot of them even had like these graduate degrees, right? And so there were like highly achieving Korean immigrant entrepreneurs who were coming in Beijing, set up for success. And yet, a lot of them were not able to thrive. At the same time, the Korean Chinese—they didn't have any of that. You know, most of them had high school degrees, or sometimes like、um, what's called like junior college degrees, like two-year college degrees. If lucky, a small percentage of them had college degrees.、Um, but they, what they, what they had. That the South Koreans didn't have was, as you said, you know, they were culturally hybrid, and because they were culturally hybrid, it wasn't just that they were bilingual, or that they um, could um, communicate in Mandarin and Korean, because there were some businessmen who also from South Korea who could have that kind of skill as well, but the Korean Chinese they went. Beyond that, they had this very intricate knowledge of、um, how to establish rapport, how to build relationships with both South Koreans as well as the local Chinese, as well as like Chinese bureaucrats, and so their ability to have these various relationships and to understand the inner worlds. Of these communities that really didn't communicate with each other otherwise, allowed them to act as brokers, and I call them、uh, cultural brokers. So, in a sense, what I argue that is that in terms of these transnational enclaves or transnational communities, the most important criteria for success is not whether or not you have like a degree from a prestigious university, or if you have.、Um, Like back past experiences working at Samsung or McKinsey, even that doesn't matter. It's like how diverse your social network is in terms of its cultural width and in terms of its social breadth. 
you know, whether it's lower class workers as well as these upper class bureaucrats. And these Korean Chinese were able to do all of that. And so they were extremely mm. successful. Mm, yeah, and I remember in um, chapter six, you were talking about how a lot of uh, literature talk about the importance of guanxie, uh, social connection, um, as like a primary determinant of success. But then uh, you kind of say, actually, no, that's not all. And you mentioned, yeah, <laughs> bao and wrenching. Um, so there needs to be like an element of like genuineness and um, kind of like cultural experiences and attenuation that needs to happen in order for them to be successful, which I found to be really fascinating. Um, and I'm not, um, I, I'm not really familiar with the Chinese society. So I actually wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about this idea of guanxie and um, how this plays out in uh, scholarship about China and uh, the entrepreneurship that happens in China. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, Guanxi is actually a really big literature uh, in China. You know, it, it means social networks or social connections. And a lot has been written about it, especially in the 1990s when these foreign entrepreneurs, these investors from America and Taiwan and Hong Kong, they started entering China. Um, and a, what a lot of the China scholars argue was the key to success in business in China was guanxi. And if you didn't have guanxi, you would fail. And if you had guanxi, you would succeed. And so what I argued, um, and guanxi is basically not just social, social networks, but a special type of connection that you have with Chinese bureaucrats. And oftentimes these Chinese bureaucrats had connections with the CCP, with the Communist Party. And it, it links back to this idea that the Communist Party still has a lot of like backdoor channel, arbitrary decision-making powers. And they can basically mm, manage and determine like who is set up for success, who has the resources and the uh like the connections with the vendors and the connections with different market channels, right? Like who is set up for success and who doesn't basically has to do whether or not you can have this special type of rapport with these Chinese bureaucrats. And to a certain extent, that's true. But I, I think it's too simplistic because, you know, it's not just these bureaucrats who hold power. Um, because, you know, if you look at these, what's called the floating population. So there's a lot of literature in, on, in China studies also about the floating population. And that's about these rural migrants who are coming into the major cities like Beijing and Shanghai starting in the 1980s and 1990s. There are hundreds of thousands of them who are flooding these cities. Because, you know, China used to be a communist or, you know, used to be very not they're still communist, but very tightly regulated market where business is tightly regulated and you couldn't move around. You couldn't migrate around because you wanted to. You had to get a government. Uh, uh, um, what's it called? Approval in order to find a job in a certain sector. Right. So when all of those uh, rules 
were, were relaxed with Deng Xiaoping and, you know, the decline of the Mao Zedong era, a lot of scholars, they looked at these rural migrants and whether or not they were able to make it in the cities. And I argue, you know, if it's just about Guanxi and it's just about Chinese uh, know-how, cultural know-how, then why is it that all of these rural migrants who have, all of them have, you know, Mandarin uh, speaking abilities and um, local know-how. Um, a few of them also have, you know, like the Zhejiang migrants also have some guanxi with, you know, upper ranking um, Chinese bureaucrats. But even the Zhejiang migrants are nowhere in terms of their levels of socioeconomic mobility when compared to the Korean Chinese. And that's because the Korean Chinese, they know they not only have the guanxi, but they also have connections with these very powerful South Korean multinational companies that these rural migrants have nowhere near that type of connection. And so it's this marriage of the two, right? It's the fact that they are able to have this unprecedented access to South Korean transnational capital. And they also have this access in terms of building rapport and good relationships with these Chinese bureaucrats. And on top of that, they're also able to really manage harmonious relationships with these um, labor migrants, these Chinese rural migrants who are working for very low wages. That makes them very good, successful businessmen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you uh, mentioned emotional labor that they perform, and you link that to how it's actually devalued in tipper companies. Um, so that's conglomerate uh, in chapter four. And you talk about your experience in turning a Jebber companies and um, seeing how Korean Chinese are excluded. They're most often excluded from the benefits and they don't stay there for the long time. And their skills are considered to be soft skills that are extremely devalued. And I wondered if you could um, talk more about your findings there and how they were able to mobilize the so-called soft skills that were super devalued in the company for their own success in entrepreneur setting. Yeah, so I, as you noted, went into a South Korean multinational company um, because, you know, my initial strategy was to just go to many of these headquarter branches in Beijing. And I wanted to do these interviews. Um, but the interviews were all rejected. You know, the requests were all rejected. And not only that, but I had a few interviews. And the few that I did, um, they were so scared of saying the right thing or... Um, of maintaining their pride, that I knew that if I wanted to get really get at um, their experiences, I wasn't going to obtain that information from listening to their interviews, but by observing them, right? So um, I had a friend who was an American, a white American man, you know, working for a major South Korean company in the middle of the financial district. And I said, I will work for free. (laughs) 
Um, and I will do whatever you want me to do. But under this one caveat, I want to observe and have permission to observe everything that's going on. And, you know, he, yeah, he was actually really excited, right? So (laughs) free labor. (laughs) And so he put me at this cross-cultural task force. um, Mm. And um, in this task force, there was another American, there were two um, Han Chinese workers, there was another, another Korean Chinese and a South Korean working. And we worked together and we did like surveys of satisfaction or workplace conflict. And I helped with the survey data. And I also, you know, um, helped with presentation and so on. Um, so you talked about, you know, you asked me about like these soft skills. Yeah. So what, you know, what was actually really counterintuitive to me um, was when I first entered the firm, I thought, you know, a company like Samsung or LG or SK, you know, they're these world globally renowned companies. I thought that if you got a, if you got a job there, then you were set for life. And, um, in the beginning, that's what it seemed like. You know, they recruited directly through a very rigorous screening process from like the most prestigious colleges in Beijing, like Peking University, Tsinghua University. So the creme de la creme, right? So even the Korean Chinese, they're like certified geniuses from all over the country who scored really high on the college entrance exam you know there would be banners in their hometowns so and so got into Peking university right they'd be like the pride (laughs) of the hometown right so these were like you know really high achieving korean chinese and they got these jobs there and their starting salaries were really high um and um you know, it seemed like they were doing well, but over time, as I was observing them, I saw that they would only be promoted to a certain level, and then at beyond that level, there was no, there were no Korean Chinese um, in these upper level positions, and so I thought that was very strange, right? They were all South Korean men, especially in the like the executive director position, department chair you know, position, Pujang position, there were some South Korean, some some Han Chinese, but no Korean Chinese. So as I was observing, like, why that was going on, you know, I started to see that, you know, the South Koreans, they rationalized this by saying, you know, we only hire Korean Chinese for their, quote unquote, their soft skills, because they're culturally hybrid, their role in the company is to help ease the transition of these expats, these chujewan, or these upper-level South Korean managers who are coming into Beijing for maybe two to five years to oversee operations. Um, and uh, we want to make sure that their transition is smooth. And so what the Korean Chinese, their job is to kind of shadow them around in their day-to-day life and to tell them everything that they need and from like traffic laws to where to find good Korean supermarkets and Korean coffee shops and restaurants to how to find you know a good real estate company also to like in the business meetings they would translate you know 
um, for in from Mandarin into Korean. So in terms of, it's just like a personal secretary. And because they were hired specifically for these skills, no matter if they were from Peking University and they had, you know, these degrees in like accounting or statistics, it didn't matter. They were just, they were these, you know, these fancy translators. And so they weren't really trained to do anything else. And so it kind of justified the reason why they weren't promoted. And so along with that, they also said, you know, because they're there for those roles, it's very good for a woman to have that job. So they would specifically hire Korean Chinese women for these roles. And what would end up happening is like this cycle where, you know, these Korean Chinese women would be hired. Um, they would shadow their bosses around. They would realize that they wouldn't get promoted above a certain rank. And then, you know, they maybe they have like, they would get married, have a kid, and they realize it's not, it's not worth it. So they would just quit. And so then they would hire a new Korean Chinese woman. And so when you look at these major companies, a large proportion of the Korean Chinese who are hired are not only female, but also disproportionately young. And um, a lot of these women wanted those jobs because they were offered a high starting salary. And so this, this you would find the cycle. And over time, you know, these men, they would realize they're not getting promoted. And so they would drop off and they would just, you know, start off their own companies because they, they saw that the company was not investing in them. Um, yeah. Do you have a, a follow up question? Oh, oh yeah. I I was very fascinated by that point because um I'm in gender studies currently and my master's thesis yeah focused on professionalization of domestic workers in South Korea. Um, so I'm just like very fascinated by the idea of professionalization and you know what gives legitimacy to certain skills and how even if it's like exact same skills, um, depending on your setting and your ethnicity and social status, it like all changes in terms. So societal perception, right? So um, it, it was kind of, yeah, what played out in these jibber companies. And you do talk about feminization and also how for women, because um, they have to have family and stuff like that. The companies would justify uh, giving them dead-end jobs by saying, well, this is just their natural position. Uh, so I found this super fascinating. Yeah, and along those lines, you know, they would define competence you know even in terms of like the company how they define competence is actually really socially constructed right so if you break it down even in terms of language skills why is it that at like samsung which is not where i did my research by the way but as a, you know as a as an example like you know at samsung english skills are like hard skills right and it's very desirable but mandarin skills are like it's like poo-poo do you know it's not really seen as something that's valuable um hard skills technical skills are are seen as you know a sign of competence but what about these korean chinese who are never even trained to have these so-called like technical skills right, that are supposed to be much more marketable, like have more high market value than these soft skills, um, 
you know, you didn't even give them the chance to have them in the first place. And then you're saying that they're incompetent, right? That just seems like very um, contradictory to me. Not only that, but um, it worked against them, right? So they were like, oh, these Korean Chinese, they're not seen as bringing in value to the company. But then from the when I interviewed the Korean Chinese, you know, they were saying, if it weren't for us, like how would they even run day-to-day operations here in Beijing? The reason why they were able to expand so quickly was because we were here and yet our skills are seen as soft and are seen as low market value and are seen as feminized. And all of these things become conflated with each other and, you know, work together to delegitimize um, their uh, wages and their um like their ranks, their statuses within the company. Yeah, yeah. And it's super fascinating to this um, intersection between gender and race. And it actually reminds me of what happens to Asian American men. I remember reading this article, uh, I think it was like by Forbes or something like that. And it was basically saying this was during Black Lives Matter. So obviously, uh, maybe not so obviously, but, you know, Asian Americans, the oppression that they face um, isn't the same as um, African Americans. But at the same time, this article was talking about how Asian American men when they enter like prestigious companies um, because they are so often feminized in American society they have a really hard time getting promoted so it's almost like they have a like glass ceiling of their Mm -hmm. own too yeah yeah so um, it was super fascinating how you know even in a Chinese setting where I kind of naively assumed that that maybe they wouldn't face like similar problems because they they have like similar like ethnic uh you know look um but it turns out that actually this also happens in these settings as well yeah mm. and the korean chinese men were also feminized too you know and so in a way like if you're a korean chinese man and you want to succeed in beijing and i were there like as a consultant i would say it's probably good for you to work in a company like samsung for maybe two years because you do get that know-how that cultural know-how that will help you later on when you're a business owner and you have to work with major companies that have a lot of capital as their as your clients. Um, but they're not going to invest in you. So after two years, you should just leave and start your own company. So in a sense, there's this poetic justice, right? They, they are, you know, disadvantaged. They're locked into these roles, um, but they actually outperform the South Koreans by far, when it comes to these entrepreneurial firms. Mm, that's super fascinating, yeah. Um, and I'm wondering whether we can also speak more about the ethnic boundary-making place uh, process that you mentioned um, throughout your book as well. I think it was in um, Chapter 3 when you talk about the spatial formation of Wang Qing and how basically the expats have their own place in this society as like elites and then, you know, they get they get to go to like private schools and stuff like that. So they're like super elite and they have their own complex. And then the Korean entrepreneurs have their own place and Korean Chinese have like the cheapest place. And even when um, Korean entrepreneurs uh, experience downward mobility, they still refuse to live in the same place as Korean Chinese um, because yeah, I think it really relates in terms of these like 
artificial uh, boundaries that people create and super fascinating considering that they are technically all like Korean mm. um, but also like Chinese I mean yeah I don't want to like conflate their identities at all but uh, it is super fascinating how you also talk about the neoliberal structuring of um, you know ethnic boundaries and when you talked about before with enclaves and how there used to be more idealized vision but you have started to see that there's actually more distrust and more class division um, so I found that point to be super fascinating and I would love to hear more about it from you yeah so the enclave itself in terms of its spatial organization is really stratified um, and as you noted there are districts within the Korea town where the expats or you know in Korean they're called the chuje one and these are people who are dispatched from the South Korean multinational forms known as the Chebel for, as I said, two to five years. Um, and they are just at this different status, like <laughs> incomparable status, right? Because <laughs> they get, I think, double their salaries, what they had received in Korea, which is already really high. And they get separate stipends for their um, apartments. They get a separate chauffeur, like a drive, personal driver, a housekeeper, a nanny, and they can send their children to these elite private schools that are like these English language international schools that send these children to, you know, universities in North America, like um, in Canada and in the U.S. And so for these wives, you know, the dream is to send their children to like an Ivy League university. And that's what their life is all about, right? They even have these high ones, right? And it was just, it was just crazy, because uh, what I found in Wang Jing was this microcosm that was exaggerated form of soul, like the gaps between the rich and the middle class and the poor were just so much more exaggerated in Beijing. So the gap between these expats and like there is such luxurious social socially, you know, upper mobile, the the echelon in which they were living in, that kind of gated communities that they were in were much more elite and prestigious and impenetrable than what you would find even in like Gangnam. And then at the same time, these middle-class South Koreans, you know, these are the people who are maybe working for like Samsung in Seoul. They got laid off when they were like 50. Some of their friends started like mom and pop kitchen or chicken, chicken restaurants in Seoul. And then they took their money and they started like something similar in Beijing, right? But these people, they would lose their retirement savings. And, you know, they would start off with an apartment unit in like the middle of the enclave that was somewhat kind of uh, close nearby to the expats but then i would find them like downsizing their apartment they would move from a three three bedroom to a two bedroom and then to like a one bedroom like a studio apartment and then they would have like nowhere to go and they would either move to like the countryside in china or they would move back to seoul to live with their family or they would sometimes like live underground right and so 
Yeah, that was it. Was really sad. Like it reminded mm. me of Parasite. Do you know Parasite? And when I watched yeah. that film, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, I love that movie. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, that's so true. The basement. Yeah, underground yeah, basement. And there was like this new world, you know, in these new these apartment units on the upper floors. It's like luxurious apartments, but on the basement levels, there are also these rooms and they had like a convenience store in the basement level like a hair salon like a massage parlor that was like really shady probably like a brothel and then like these dormitories where there were these bunk beds and because like you could smell like the sewage there and like in the summertime the mosquitoes were just like because of the humidity they were like all over the place it was just a miserable place and these south koreans i heard you know they would live there disconnected from the Korean community and they would just buy enough rice to survive for one day. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's super sad. I know. I know. (laughs) Uh, It was just unbelievable. And then there are these Korean Chinese who also lived in their own uh, section. And what was telling was that there were no buses that went between the Korean Chinese section and the South Korean section. You would have to wait like an hour for a bus to go back and forth but a taxi ride is like five minutes right so it shows the level of disconnect between the korean chinese side and the south korean side and even the korean chinese even if they get really wealthy they might go to some other area within beijing but they would definitely not go into like where the expats lived it was just very kind of demarcated um, the Korean Chinese, sometimes they would work. So they would work in a business that was in the South Korean side, but they would live in the Korean Chinese side. And the Korean Chinese side to the South Koreans were stigmatized. So if you went to the Korean Chinese side, um, it was like, what were you doing there? You know? So like for a newcomer, like a question they would ask you is like, where do you live? Like, which apartment do you live in? And from there, they would like mark you. Are you, oh, you're a South Korean entrepreneur, you're an expat, or you're a Korean Chinese. So these zones became like identities and stigmatized in their own ways. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that's super fascinating. And I thought, yeah, it was like really fascinating too when you said that, that all these people would like yeah, choose such basements or like going to the countryside over intermingling with Korean Chinese, which is just super telling about how, as you said, zones become identity. And I think you also call this scripted as well. So people can't really get out of the script that's already set out for them, even if they can reimagine maybe like different uh, sort of businesses or like different kind of social relationship if they just uh, step out of it but it is like hard for people to do Um, and I know that church is like a very big part of your um, ethnographical uh, research and um, it also reminded me as well about the disconnect uh, that it that happens in a big South Korean mega church, uh, while there's actually more connection in the underground churches that you um, have been to. Um, so I wanted to ask you more about the churches as well, because I know how important this was for your research. Yeah, so that was also very counterintuitive to me and also very telling of what makes success, you know, for a transnational migrant. Um, So for the Korean Chinese church, you know, it was an underground church, very, very humble. It's like it was in this, 
you know, kind of medium-sized building, very like um, a little bit run down. You know, it was by this karaoke bar with these like sketchy girls there too, you know, who were hostesses. And, you know, not a really nice part of town. Um, and when you went there, you know, the rooms were very Spartan. They only had like these metal fold-up chairs. So it wasn't as if they had a lot of money. But what I found was that, you know, they really had this very strong bond that they had with each other and they really cared about each other and their relationships extended well beyond the bounds of Sunday service. They called each other throughout the week. If someone was sick, I, you know, I was sick once and then I would get this call from this deacon and then another person would give me like soup. This other person would take me to the doctor, you know, it's just. Yes, it was just like, you know, this feeling of, you know, in, as a, a sociologist, you would um, um, uh, call this solidarity, ethnic solidarity. And so this ethnic solidarity was really strong. And, you know, I argue in that chapter that it's because the Korean Chinese, they feel stigmatized by the South Koreans as well as the Han Chinese. They don't feel like they belong, you know, as I talked about earlier during this interview. And the only place where they def- where they feel like they're okay and where they feel like they have a right to be there is in their own community. And so there is this feeling of through thick and thin, I will have your back, right? And so what, in terms of small business, that's amazing um, resource, right? If your business is having trouble, whether in terms of information that you need or like a vendor that you need or um, like if you need like a worker who just suddenly quit, like those resources really can save your business um, if it's at the brink of collapse. And so that really plays an important role. For the South Koreans, it's like the opposite. Um, on the surface, like the South Korean church was amazing, right? It was like this... It was like this mega church. Have you been? You must. You must have been gone to a mega church in Korea, right? It's. I think so. Long time ago. Long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> there's like several floors. There's like a cafeteria floor, and there's like a gym. That this church had like several sanctuaries. You know, main sanctuary, like women's sanctuary, like the the church grounds. They even had. Did I tell you? They even had a gym that they rented out to, it was just so amazing. And in terms of like their Bible study materials, they had like this publishing house that printed and like published all of these Bible study materials or training materials. They had speakers come in from Seoul and all over the world who were very famous. Um, their, their leaders went on these global retreats. This mega church had branches all over the world, right? So it was amazing and yet when i talked to the south korean entrepreneurs they were like you know like why why should we talk about like our personal lives right our our during our personal experiences during these uh bible studies right like i only talk about the bible and my spiritual life i don't really share like what i'm going through Right? And then like the South Korean expats who were there, they felt this very disconnect. They were like, we're both South Korean, but 
we play golf on the weekends and we have like these five course meals and our wives have like these lavish lunches during the weeks, right? They have this different lifestyle and we don't really feel like we're a part of the same group, right? And so because they felt this um, disconnect, the church didn't really provide any resource um, to these South Korean entrepreneurs who needed support. You know, they didn't have anyone else, right? So um, they didn't feel like they could be vulnerable to each other. And the Korean Chinese, on the other hand, they shared everything, right? Every kind of vulnerability, every need that they had, every anxiety, every worry they shared with each other. So what I argue is that, you know, for a church to provide um, migrants with, with, resources, what's important is not necessarily their access to these material transnational resources, but more like how they're able to mobilize this by establishing rapport with each other and by establishing a core identity and a sense of community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I have already taken up so much of your time already. Um, but then if it's okay with you, I only have two more questions. Um, yeah, yeah. so one is actually related to what you're saying about this fascinating insight into how it's not actually like material resources that matter. I mean, it matters to some degree, but it's more the personal connection that you make that is making a lot of impact as you're seeing through your fieldwork. Um, so so you talk about emotional vulnerability as a researcher and how there's a bit of disagreement because some scholars argue, no, you know, you can't really establish that because that's going to harm your research. But then you actually argue through like a personal story how in your research, actually, this vulnerability really helped and you think that this is actually an integral part of good research. Um, so I wondered whether you could talk more about that because I found that to be personally very convincing and like wonderful as like a future researcher. <laughs> mm, yeah, so I really struggled with this too. Um, yeah, as a sociologist, um, you know, I was trained to like triangulate my data, right? Which is still important. And, you know, to um, make sure that my findings were rigorous and make sure that my findings were uh, reliable. And the way that you do that is, you know, the ways that you word your questionnaires and so on and so forth. So this is like the tradition in which I was trained in. And I still believe all of those things to a certain degree. Um, But what was, what I wasn't, trained in as a graduate student was just how important um, establishing trust is and how important um, like vulnerability is. And I think there's a lot of um, dissension about how vulnerable you should be, like where that line is. And I really struggled with trying to figure out within myself where that line is. The way that I came to figure out for myself that boundary was, you know, through a period of uh, trial and error where I tried the ways that I was taught and no one would talk to me, right? They would, or they would give me these very canned answers, right? And I wanted to get beyond that. And I realized that they, a lot of them, you know, I'm asking them to share these feelings of, shame and sometimes failure and um, 
things that they're not necessarily proud of. And I realized, you know, if it were me, I would only want to do that if I felt like I could be safe with this person and I could trust that this person's intentions were in the right place. And how can, how can I, and I thought about how can I show them that my intentions are in the right place? And, you know, up until that stage, you know, I, I kind of closed my own story from them because I thought that it would taint my interactions. So I didn't really talk about myself, but more and more, I realized that I needed to reveal like why I was there, why I was interested in them. And more importantly, that it wasn't just about like writing this book and being a professor like that. It wasn't about that. Right. It was that like, you know, I, I write about this in my book, but like I too understand how it feels, right? Like I am not just talking about precariousness because it's interesting theoretically. Um, <laughs> but because, you know, my family, when I was a kid, like we started a small mom and pop shop and we, my dad, he lost his whole savings, all of his retirement savings. And he was unemployed for a while. and as you know, uh, you know, a col- I was a college student at that time, and I didn't know like what to do, and I felt so hopeless, and I felt, you know, so like scared, and I didn't know how to process those feelings, and that was why, you know, I started this research project, and that was why I wanted to make these stories known and understand what it means to be a part of the middle class because I I never felt like I was part of the middle class and I never felt like I belonged anywhere, right? So once I was, once I showed that part of myself to them, um, over time, you know, I started to see them open up to me and the stories that I was privileged to hear after that was just incomparable to the stories that I was told in the beginning of my field research when, you know, I was like this researcher and I, you know, I had these questions and I was going to ask them these questions, right? And I had these professional boundaries. It was much more rich, right? And so I started to think about um, vulnerability as like a methodological approach that's really necessary to be rigorous, Right, when we're talking about these human lives, right? It's not you're you're not in like this laboratory setting. You you have to be who you are, and you have to show them your sincerity. Um, and it's up to you to do that. And vulnerability is a really key component of that. Mm, yeah oh thank you so much for sharing that like deeply personal story and when I was reading your work I was really touched and I those were some of the questions that I think I would hope to think about when I start my own field work too and my extended family in Korea are actually super poor and I know how privileged they think I am uh, in being able to do PhD and to you know investigate into all these esoteric questions and a lot of them don't see value in it so that's why I think like when you said that you know it's not just about becoming professor but rather and like being interested in precarity just because it's theoretically interesting but rather 
together, you know, linking it to personal and seeing that you are uh, invested in it, you know, personally and at like a very human level, I think that probably makes a lot of difference to the participants. Yeah. Um, but this is my final question. What is your next project that you're working on? My next project is looking at another diaspora Korean population, and this time in Japan. So um, initially, I you know, traveled to Japan as a postdoctoral fellow um, to do research on Korean Japanese entrepreneurs, right? So I went with my you know, fieldwork cap on and I was like, okay, where are the entrepreneurs? And then I started to see that there were um, in the middle of the Koreatown these uh, ultra right-wing nationalists who were starting to like um, organize these hate demonstrations um, against the Korean minorities there. Um, and so when I saw that, it was just so like, troubling and I just saw like how much devastation that it was um enacting on that community that I went to my supervisor and I said you know I want to change my project so my second project actually looks at social movements and how diasporic Koreans in Japan otherwise known as Zainichi Koreans how they are mobilizing to um stop the influx of these anti-Korean hate parades in the middle of the Korean ghettos in Japan. Oh, wow. This sounds like a super rewarding project and very fascinating as well. Uh, I look forward to reading your next work, uh, whether it's article or a book, uh, even though you just published now, so no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> all the time that you need. And thank you again for joining me in this interview. Thank you so much, Anne. I had so much fun. Yeah, this was so much fun. Yeah, I hope to see you in actual person <laughs> one yes, day. after this pandemic <laughs> is over, hopefully.